something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are today's Mission Control of Minutia. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtalk. And Jordan, today we're talking about another jewel in the great mid-90s run of sci-fi space movies. We are talking about Contact. I didn't realize that we had programmed another outer space movie from the late 90s into the rotation so quickly after Men in Black. And Bob Zemeckis, who did uh, Roger Rabbit. So, yes. yeah, we're really showing our biases here. Yeah. Um, it's a great movie, though. It's a beautiful movie. It's a kinder, yes. gentler version of uh, space than Independence Day or Men in Black. And certainly more than Event Horizon, which... Uh, <laughs> do you remember that movie? <laughs> Vaguely, Where yes. they take a spaceship to hell. Um, that movie whips, but, um, anyway, yeah, it's a unique film in the genre. It's the, like, staring up at space when you're a little kid. It's got, brings that kind of wide-eyed innocence to it, and, um... There's no death rays, yeah, there's no flying no, saucers, nothing's, no goo. Nothing's putting eggs in your chest. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, you know, th- all that being said, I missed this movie when I was a kid somehow. Really? Yeah, my well, parents... it's not really a kid's movie. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I I mean, it also came out in between Independence Day and Men in Black, which <laughs> yeah. were occupied like three straight years of my life. So <laughs> didn't really have room for this one. But it, I we watched it again recently. At some point I watched it, then we watched it again recently, like during uh pandemic freshman year. And I was just <laughs> struck anew. It's such a beautiful film. You know, I'm assuming you have much more history with it. Yeah, I was incredibly fascinated with space as a kid. I mean, I'm a veteran of space camp. So anything that had to do with space, I eagerly watched. And this was probably one of the last ones I saw because, I mean, compared to Men in Black and Independence Day and all these other movies, it kind of looked boring. The poster was just Jodie Foster with headphones on outside of a big satellite dish. Yeah. Uh, But good Lord, this is the one that stuck with me the longest. Because as you say, it's so different. It's so much more gentle. And it really has Carl Sagan, who wrote the novel that this was based on and spent the last 
17 years of his life trying to get this made, it has his sense of wonder, the whole, you know, billions and billions of stars, which I'm totally never actually said that. That's kind of like the catchphrase that everyone says when doing a Carl Sagan reference, but I don't think he ever actually said that. I think that was a Johnny Carson impression. Do you watch Cosmos? years ago like back yeah. in this era i was just so into this stuff yeah i mean he's just such a fascinating figure and uh, he once said by finding out what the other planets are like by finding out whether there are civilizations on planets of other stars we reestablish a meaningful context for ourselves and i think that's such an important ethos for this movie jodie foster called it a movie about people and their passions rather than an aliens movie and it's true mm-hmm. The whole story of contact, it just captures this delicate intersection of religion, science, and politics. And I think it does it in a really beautiful way, in a really challenging way. Uh, but yeah, this movie gave me my favorite one-line motto when it comes to how I feel about being life on other planets. You know, if we're alone in the universe, sure seems like an awful waste of space. <laughs> such a great line. I just think this is, it, it's such a beautiful way of illustrating that science and faith however you want to define faith aren't mutually exclusive there are things that that we don't understand and don't know and i think that's a beautiful thing and you know carl sagan was a a man who lived his life by science but i think he allowed for the i'll call it magic you know the things that that we we don't know about yet and i think that that frightens some people but i think other people are exhilarated by that and i think that's a a really cool way to live your life yeah this movie there'll be many moments in this episode when i choke up because i really do (laughs) think it's a a beautiful meditation on the mysteries of why we're here yeah well from the whopping advance that mr sagan secured for the novel (laughs) more more prosaic more prosaic concerns he was able to transform his incredible view of the universe into cold hard cash filthy lucre uh, to the film's prolonged stay in, speaking of Event Horizon, the prolonged stay that this movie spent in development hell, to the truly out-of-this-world filming locations that they went to for it, here is everything you didn't know about Contact. Carl Sagan, growing up in Bensonhurst in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. I like to imagine him rolling around with a baseball bat, like whipping people's <laughs> ass on the street corners, singing the T-Birds, singing doo-wop, played a spaghetti, boxing, stickball. What other offensive Italian-American <laughs> stereotypes can we put in here? He had a number of formative experiences that shaped his life's work growing up. The first one was the 1939 New York World's Fair, which he attended at four years old. And uh, he would later speak of being very moved by the America of Tomorrow exhibit. And he spent a lot of time at the Museum of Natural History, but he quickly got off Earth (laughs) and away from... There's not much here. Yeah, well, you can only see the big polar bears so many times, but his interest in space was really sparked by science fiction writers, guys like H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, Arthur Clarke. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and he uh, wrote in the New York Times or told the New York Times for a piece in 1978, science fiction has led me to science, which I love. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, so much of the joy and wonderment that comes across in his work, and particularly the show Cosmos, comes down to the fact that the sci-fi dreams of his childhood, like space exploration and space travel, were becoming a reality in his young adulthood. Like, how 
cool is that? He was yeah. in his 30s when the Gemini and Apollo space programs began. So, yeah, I mean, this stuff just went from the realm of science fiction to reality in a few short decades. And his delight in this was so palpable in everything that he did. I think that's what made him so popular. But in 1947, he discovered Astounding Science Fiction magazine, which coincidentally was the same year that Flying Saucers hit the national consciousness. And Sagan talked in the New York Times piece about sort of abandoning science fiction as he got older, as he learned more about actual science, saying that he could no longer make the leaps of logic and suspensions of disbelief that sci-fi reading required. And so it's funny. He singles out a short story written by L. Ron Hubbard, The End Is Not Yet. He read it first at 19, and he loved it. And then he read it years later as an adult, and he said, I was so amazed at how it declined in the intervening years that I seriously considered the possibility that there were two novels of that title by the same author of vastly differing quality. So I guess in the years that he started becoming interested in actual science as NASA was formed and people were actually going to space, he starts to take a dimmer view on science fiction. Uh, he also doesn't really have nice things to say about Star Trek, but uh, hey, he liked Dune. Yeah, he likes Martian Chronicles too by Bradbury, which is cool. The piece is just so funny because like there's some things in there where he's just like, this is bullshit science and there's other where he's like i don't know though it's well written so i liked it i like the i like little nerdy carl just reading astounding science fiction magazine in between meetings of his doo-wop group but that disillusionment presumably fed into his desire to write his own work of science fiction which was helped along by his third wife who's a woman named Anne drian uh they met at a dinner party hosted by nora efron <laughs> this producer who worked on contact linda obst uh has talked about how great Nora Ephron's dinner parties were, which is adorable. Uh, they New met York seems so much smaller back then, man. Yeah, especially if you're rich and white. Um, back in 1974, they met. So this was just a year after Sagan had become a really, truly public figure celebrity with his first book called The Cosmic Connection. But she is a fascinating figure within her own right. She grew up in Queens and uh, attended the 1964 World's Fair as a teenager. Her parents did, too. And I, according to family legend, they went, they, even though they didn't know each other, they went the same weekend. May have made that up. but I think some of my family did from Harrisburg as well. But she also described that as a, as a watershed moment for her interest in space. She attended NYU for three years, but left and sort of spent some time as this interesting kind of creative uh, gadfly around town. She was working at a bookstore and rubbing elbows with famous New York creative types like John Lennon and uh, wow. Duke Ellington. She told the wow. uh, Chicago Tribune that she was friends with Duke Ellington and his family, and uh, he would drive her around to black churches so that they could hear like gospel music, which is incredible. And she and Sagan, they started out as friends, but he asked her for help with the uh, Voyager space probes, which is, uh, you know, quick rundown for anyone who doesn't know that. They're gold-plated records containing a number of things that were deemed central to a prospect of aliens understanding of human culture. There's like whale songs, there's music, there's um, the sound of people kissing, I think is on there. Yeah, yeah. Different, many, many different languages too, I think. And yes. these gold records were affixed to the side of these space probes, which were designed to be, the, I think, the first objects that were designed to leave the solar system. Yeah. Uh, and there was a, a little kind of pictogram that would show alien prospective aliens how to actually play this record, make some kind of device to be able to, to listen to it. Really cool. Yeah. Like, one of the cooler things we have done as a species. It's, it's true. They should have sent a Pono. 
<laughs> and just Neil Young riding it along with him. Just, and his, the first thing an alien hears is the pissed off Neil Young explaining <laughs> explaining bit rates. It's actually closest to the uh, the true master you get off of a vinyl. Anyway, on 60 Minutes in 2018, what I love about Anne is that she advocated in particular for the notion of including Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good. Hell because yeah. Because that song defined the music of motion, of moving, getting to some place you've never been before, and the odds are against you, but you want to go. That was Voyager. I love that so much. There was a, I think it was an SNL bit in the 70s where they talk about aliens making contact with Earth after coming into contact with Voyager and their messages send more Chuck Berry. <laughs> yeah. So It'd be good. weird if the aliens were like perverts and they were like, uh, just send more people kissing. <laughs> just send more mouth sounds. Gross. Anyway, their love story is adorable. Um, Drian wanted a piece of Chinese music for the record and she settled on a 2,500 year old song called Flowing Stream, which actually is in my vows. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a famous piece of music because there's a very famous Chinese, uh, Chin is the instrument it was played on. I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation. But he had a buddy, this Chin player, who I think is credited with writing the song, had a friend, and they were just the best of friends. And uh, when this guy died, the player broke his instrument. He vowed never to, never to play again because no one would ever love his music and understand it the same way that uh, this guy did. And so there's a phrase or word for close friend in Chinese that translates to someone who understands my music. Um, wow. And that's the composition that he is most associated with. Anyway, so they settled, they decided to put that song on this record and she leaves a message for Carl at his hotel and he calls back within an hour and apparently by the end of this phone call they were engaged to be married, which good on you, Carl. <laughs> what is that game like? It became clear to two people who had never been alone together that we were madly in love, she said later. Which, mm. And they were married for the rest of his life, right? Yeah. Wow. That's really beautiful. But so by this point, Drian had already written and published a novel called A Famous Broken Heart. And then so she subsequently goes on to collaborate with Sagan uh, to co-write the 1980 PBS documentary series Cosmos, which is Sagan also hosts. Uh, at one, two Emmys and a Peabody has since been broadcast in over 60 countries and seen by more than 500 million people. Wow. As of 2009, it was still the most widely watched PBS series in the world. Bumping Wishbone to second place. <laughs> uh, I'm imagining Wishbone in a cute little like, Sagan turtleneck and yeah. blazes. I love I love In Contact when she's um, when John Hurt is watching yeah. her on TV. She's dressed in the turtleneck and blazer combo as a nod to him. I uh, love that so much. It, so in 1978, the pair had just finished work on an episode of Cosmos about Hypatia, the mathematician and leader of the Great Library of Alexandria whose work on the Diophantine equations would later inspire Newton. I have no idea what any of those words mean. But unfortunately, for political reasons that I tried to learn about and paraphrase and are very long and complicated and related to primarily misogyny and religion, she was dragged from her chariot and torn to pieces and mutilated by a violent mob. So they wanted to write a narrative about a female scientist that wouldn't end in such a way. One of the more horrifying things I read about this that Druyan talks about was supposedly uh, this mob carved out Hypatia's eyes with either broken shells or um, I think what they supposedly used was abalone shells. And so consequently, and this is maybe kind of a weird thing, 
Sagan gave Anne a piece of abalone that she wore around her neck for the rest of her life because of the story of Hypatia, whose eyes were gouged out by the material. Anyway, (laughs) that's what goes into the making of Contact. The couple were staying in West Hollywood when another friend from Nora Ephron's dinner party, who I mentioned earlier, a producer named Linda Opst, Opst, uh, we gotta start asking and finding out how these people's names are pronounced before. I know we're never gonna do that. That's the, uh, the too much information guarantee. We'll never learn how to pronounce your name right. That woman has had a hand in Flashdance, Adventures in Babysitting, The Fisher King, one of my be- favorite lesser known Robin Williams, Terry Gilliam joints, oh. Jeff Bridges, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, and Interstellar, um, among many others. She suggested that they write a screenplay. So they finished their treatment in 1980, and the vulture oral history of contact is the gift that keeps on giving. There's so many astounding quotes in there. Uh, Anne's is, of course we were stoned writing contact. <laughs> as, as, as if she's offended by the notion yeah, that they exactly. weren't. And this gets into the hands of a guy named Peter Goober, who is uh, at the time head of Casablanca Records. He launched his career as a film producer with Midnight Express in 1978. He is a big deal. Um, he produced Rain Man, Batman, The Color Purple, Gorillas in the Mist, Witches of Eastwick, also Flashdance. He also co-owns the Golden State Warriors and the L.A. Dodgers, wow. among a bunch of his stuff. He's a b- big um, uh, mover and shaker. His uh, partner for a long time was this guy, John Peters, who was the guy that Bradley Cooper's playing in Licorice Pizza. He was kind of a an iconoclastic. Have you seen it? Licorice Pizza? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. That monologue is so f***ing funny. I love it so much. You got a brother? I'm going to choke him out. I'll choke him out. (laughs) Choke him out right in front of you. Yeah, Peters is is wacky. Yeah, definitely a weird guy. I love how Carl Sagan basically refused to bend to any kind of like Hollywood script constraints. Every time this Linda Opes woman would try to suggest any kind of rules of conventional screenplay drama, Carl Sagan would say, is this an argument by authority or an argument of convention? (laughs) Which is amazing. I think she says at one point that Spielberg had been tapped to direct this and they said no because uh, it would have been too much alpha male energy in the room between him and Carl, (laughs) which is so damn funny to imagine the two of them as alpha males, like just these two schnerdy dudes. But yeah, they both had very strong ideas about their art. So... Hmm. That tracks. Um, okay, so, Obst, Obst, Linda, sorry, Linda, they brought Peter the 110-page treatment. That's insane. Like, you were, like, I went to screenwriting oh, right. school, yeah, and yeah, you were yeah. basically told, I was literally told by my professor, these people don't read, make your treatments. If, if it's more than five pages, it's probably too long. If, if you're hitting 10, well, absolutely no way. I mean, granted, I was not then nor now am Carl Sagan. Wait till you still. get to uh, Happy Feet director George Miller's 200-page treatment, which is supposedly still out there. Anyway, Goober immediately begins f***ing with it in the time-honored tradition of male producers everywhere, changing the plot to be about a woman scientist who abandons her son and has to go searching <sighs> for him because... Yeah, well, f- this dude uh, um and he starts shopping it to what linda calls all the wrong directors um and she adds that peter tried very hard to separate contact from carl among the other uh, changes that he wanted to push was having like this sort of cliched uh native american character who becomes a, an astronaut and i guess was spouting all kinds of like you know native american by way of white hollywood producer platitudes 
Yeah, this Peter Goober guy was really pushing for the Jodie Foster character, Ellie, to have an estranged son because, in his words, here was a woman consumed with the idea that there was something out there worth listening to, but the one thing she could never make contact with was her own child. (laughs) To me, that's what the film had to be about. Yeah, I would argue that that's lazy and also unfair to turn this woman's passion into a negative. But I gotta say, a little bit of the sort of slightly misanthropic tendencies does show up in Jodie Foster's portrayal. She's this person who's desperately looking to connect, but she really doesn't get along well with other human beings. There's an interview that Tom Skerritt, who plays her boss, David Drummond, gave, and that's kind of his observation, that she was this uh, gentle soul whose father died as a little girl and kind of left her calloused and really having a tough time connecting with people. It's much easier to try to look outward out into the solar system and try to connect with spirits out there. Well, after dealing with Hollywood producers, can you really blame anyone for never having to want to deal with humanity again? (laughs) Anyway, uh, Uh, So with this thing hung up in this guy's greasy hands, greasy cocaine flecked hands, Carl and Anne decide to turn it into a novel. And before it's even written, Simon and Schuster plopped down two million bucks for it in 1981, which uh, I've heard that as a record for the largest advance payout for a novel that was not yet written. Damn. Bumping the novelization of Wishbone to second place. <laughs> I love that Wishbones, we got to keep Wishbone as a running bit. The book doesn't come out until 1985, but Goober goes, I think, to Warner Brothers in 1982, and he tries to bring the rights over there. And in this intervening time, it sells 1.7 million copies in its first two wow. years. But film version stays in development hell until 1989, when he splits from Warner Brothers to go co-head Sony Pictures with John Peters. And this is what's so funny, man. Karma. I don't necessarily believe in it, but when examples of it pop up, it, I, it does warm my heart. The rights to the picture stay at Warner. He tries to buy them for Sony, and Linda Obst has landed at Warner as a producer and refuses to sell them. Warner Brothers apparently gave her this movie to develop without having any idea she had a hand in the original. They were Whoa. like, hey, do you have any do you have any interest in this uh, space movie we have the rights to uh, called Contact? And she's like, you have no idea. Um, so they bring on writer James V. Hart, who wrote the screenplay for Hook, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola movie, which put a bookmark by that name. We'll come back to him later. And uh, the 1994 attempt to cash in on the success of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That is a misbegotten film, if ever there was one. Uh, He said no (laughs) multiple times. Um, He told Vulture there have been seven screenwriters on this thing. And the most embarrassing thing, not one of them or any of the directors who had been brought on board or pitched ever even contacted Carl or Anne about it. Just Hollywood horse man. They ran through so many people trying to get this thing made. Uh, Roland Jaffe, who had done The Killing Fields and The Mission, he was attached to direct. Uh, he dropped out, and they bring in George Miller, who, a bit of a problem child. Uh, George Miller did the Mad Max films, um, Babe, Pig in the City, <laughs> uh, two Happy Feet movies. <laughs> um, and his vision for the film was much less mainstream. Than the final version. Um, people talk. I, I, is this script out there? Did you Google it? I haven't been able to find it yet, but uh, Jodie Foster likened it to a racer head. Yes. <laughs> yes, she did. Uh, and Lorenzo's oil. 
<laughs> um, so he so brought, dense is what I'm hearing. Yeah, dense and inaccessible. He brought in a writer who remained uncredited on the film, a guy named Menno Mayes, um, to work with him on the script. And so Miller and Mayes craft this new, different vision for the film. And what did, what was Jody's quote about it? She said that it was stranger than the version that was ultimately made. Quote, because that was the idea. The universe is strange. There were scenes with, like, roadkill that you wouldn't think were right on the path of the story, <laughs> but which I felt had the power to expand the viewer's consciousness. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Sounds, sounds Lynchian to me. Uh, Drurian said Miller had seminars with military experts and social scientists to get a handle on how the world would react in an actual first contact situation. I think, I don't know if I put this in here, but I think I remember reading at one point that this script was 200 pages long. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how society would react to being contacted by aliens is to me the most interesting point in the whole movie, the complex ways it would impact culture and all the different responses from all sides. I mean, religious, political, even down to the late night comedians. They had Jay Leno in this. And the movie does a really good job. The final movie, I should say, does a really cool job of illustrating this in a pretty economic way. They just have like four TV screens and they go through and just show all the channel flicking through TV news anchors and crossfire type political commentator shows and late night stand-up comedians and they have Rob Lowe as this like head of a conservative coalition complaining this is another example of science intruding into matters of faith which I feel like is probably something that would be said if aliens actually did contact us I just think it's such a cool way of illustrating all the how pedestrian we would make it yeah how partisan we would make that's it. really it. how yeah. how much we would just it would almost turn us all against each other yeah it's like the opposite of watchmen it's hilarious and also jodie foster's character probably one of my favorite scenes is when she's driving through the desert on the way to uh the very large SETI array headquarters yeah the very large array with all the satellite dishes and there's this basically a giant tailgating party and you see the spectrum of reactions firsthand you've got partiers you've got prayers from the devout and choirs you've got neo-nazis you've got elvis fans <laughs> uh i saw one review where they described it as part tent revival part grateful dead concert which i think is perfect i don't know i just think the whole reaction to getting contacted by aliens is so much more nuanced than say like an independence day when people are just like having a giant rooftop party before the aliens blow them up like it just <laughs> seems so much more like that's so fascinating well that to was me. la Right. Well, you're right. That was LA. But just, yeah, every other Alien Encounters movie either has like a close encounter style, just like mouth agape mm -hmm. reaction or the war of the worlds, like the nation is gripped by fear type of response. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so this, it's funny that CNN is the principal news outlet in there because uh, and there were 25-plus news reporters from CNN who have roles in there. Um, Larry King Live and Crossfire in there. And then a few years later, CNN bans the use of its logo in fictional movies. And CNN reporters are not allowed to do movie cameos, with the exception of Larry King, who does what he wants. <laughs> He's the king, baby. Yeah, I guess it was an ethics thing because CNN were owned by Time Warner, which were Warner Brothers' parent company, and Warner Brothers made the movie. So they didn't want to make it seem like these impartial journalists were being manipulated by a major media company. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think there was a statement at the time that it, quote, blurred the line between fact and fiction and erodes the credibility of journalists by having them appear in these movies. So, yeah, future cameos had to be cleared by an ethics officer at CNN. But just getting back to the scene where 
Ellie's driving through the big party in the desert. I just think that's such a cool scene. It apparently required 3,000 extras who answered ads in a local paper seeking UFO enthusiasts. And one of my favorite little bits is that there's driving by, there's a, a big banner that says UFO abduction insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a real company. I actually saw a table for them when I went <laughs> out to the... Uh, do that ridiculous Area 51 raid thing a couple years ago, and Warner Brothers paid them to use their idea in the movie, which is hilarious. How are their rates? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? I actually know this offhand. I believe it's $25 flat fee, and then if anything happens that you can prove, you get, I th- it's either $10 million or $25 million. You get a sizable payout. Yeah, right? All right. So, all right. But this desert scene is also, I believe, the first scene when Jodie Foster's character sees that truly terrifying blonde zealot guy who ends up, I mean, spoilers, you have a couple seconds to fast forward to this part. Okay, who blows up the uh, the spacecraft initially. Mm. Uh, he's so creepy. And, you know, it kind of makes sense. His name's Jake Busey. He's Gary Busey's son. So that intensity, that, that Busey family <laughs> intensity... That is there. He also plays a serial killer, I think, in The Frighteners, which is uh, a Peter Jackson movie starring Michael J. Fox, um, which is, I also think, from this exact span. So of, I of think time. you're right. So, yeah, he he playing to type. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, speaking of Murderous Cells, did you know that Contact was the last film that uh, fashion designer Johnny Versace ever saw? Hmm. He saw it in the theater the night before he died, before he got assassinated the next day. Hmm. Hmm. The more you know. <laughs> Um, supposedly Jody and the studio didn't like uh, the Mayas and uh, Miller script, although she diplomatically told Vulture that she liked both versions. Uh, so they bring in Michael Goldenberg, who had actually done a draft before Miller brought Mayas on board. How many versions did this go through? That's why it took 17 years to get made. And uh, what Goldenberg called it was write a draft for the studio to make them happy and Jody happy to get it back on track. (laughs) It was just a lot more complicated, this earlier version. And just really, like I said, inaccessible. Miller, for his part, believes that his version of the movie would have been a lot more like Interstellar than Contact. Which is interesting, because they both star Matthew McConaughey. Uh... George Miller has said that he's never seen the Final Contact movie, which, ouch, but he'd read the screenplay and said that it, quote, basically regressed into a much safer, more predictable kind of thing. Um, and Jodie Foster, again, with these, I think she's trying to be diplomatic, but there's definitely an edge there. It's described <laughs> George Miller as, quote, the kind of director that would make a two and a half movie about an eye blinking, and it would be the most extraordinary, deep, and beautiful film. Um not totally related, but want to hear a fact about Interstellar that will make you cry? Go I on. just learned it like an hour before we hopped onto this call. I learned this from the Film Facts Twitter account, which is very good. Uh, for Interstellar, director Christopher Nolan asked Hans Zimmer to compose the score, which is the one-page story about a father who leaves his child to do an important job. It contained only two lines of dialogue. I'll come back. When? It's a great soundtrack. Ooh. That's maybe my favorite Hans Zimmer yeah. score. Um, on the pipe organ, so good. Yeah, I oh, don't. Man. I have complicated th- feelings about that movie. I think it's got a lot of cool shit in, and I think it's got a lot of dumb stuff in it too. The fourth dimension being love. <laughs> like you want to talk about a? It's funny to me that they're shitting on this producer's idea that this woman has to go find her estranged daughter, or whatever, and then that's the plot of Interstellar. 
<laughs> father transcends space and time and goes through a wormhole to get back to his daughter. The wormhole thing is funny, too, because Sagan, I think, initially wrote that he wanted to have her go through a black hole yeah. in the first draft. And then he called a guy from Caltech who later won a Nobel Prize for his astrophysics work. And the guy was like, nah, you don't want a black hole. You want a wormhole with an Einstein-Rosen bridge. Uh, whatever the hell that means. Cigar-chopping executive. Black hole out! <laughs> Wormhole in. Um, and as you may have gleaned, uh, Miller and the studio start butting heads around this point. Um, 1997 Entertainment Weekly does a feature on it, which includes the details that Warner wanted a big Close Encounters style ending and uh, various pitched ideas that included the aliens giving the Earth a laser show from orbit. <laughs> it was like 70s style with like Pink Floyd Yellow, playing. yeah. yeah. Aliens just start broadcasting roller skating blue oyster cult into everybody's <laughs> brain in the world at the same time. Uh, and a wormhole swallowing Earth and transporting it to the center of the galaxy, which sounds like a movie exec's idea. Earth at the center of the galaxy. And <laughs> what were they going to make? Hollywood the center of the galaxy, yeah, too? I was just going to say. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. And Miller was supposedly angling for a lengthy subplot involving the Pope. <laughs> Enter cigar chopping executive. Yeah, don't help me on this. I know what the kids are into these days. Get me some white sheets and gold chains. <laughs> so Linda Ope says the studio organized, quote, a really big dumb to dumb kind of meeting to give Miller essentially the ultimatum that he had to get committed to getting this film on track or kick rocks. And uh, she recalled that his partner back in Australia was saying to him, they're, they're just bluffing. And she kept saying, George, they're not bluffing. <laughs> So he's fired, uh, and he does sue them for breach of contract. And she says they got Zemeckis to come on board the very next day, <laughs> which is good turnaround time. Um, we mentioned earlier that Steven Spielberg had turned this film down, and actually they had offered Zemeckis the film before Miller, but he was more interested in a film about making a movie about Harry Houdini, which he would then exit in favor of Contact. Did that uh, ever get made? I don't know if this I, did. No, I don't know. But basically what happened in the intervening amount of time is that Forrest Gump became the world-beating phenomenon that it, that it was and guaranteed Zemeckis the leverage to secure final cut on everything that he ever made since. And he, I believe, still has that. And he had it on, uh, he has it on this. So, good on him. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Friend of the pod, Bob Zemeckis. Good Lord, he of Roger Rabbit fame. What an insane run this guy had. I mean, I just to think about it, the love that I have for most of the movies he's made, I think I might have to name him my favorite director. Ooh. I mean, it's Romancing the Stone. It's classic. The Back to the Future movies might be my favorite movies of all time. Sure. I don't have very, you know, I love them. Uh, Roger Rabbit, of course. Forrest Gump, of course. Death Becomes Her. Mm-hmm. What Lies Beneath. Castaway and Contact. And I think either his first or his second movie was called I Want to Hold Your Hand. And it's about kids trying to sneak into the Beatles hotel room right. suite when they're going on Ed Sullivan. So he's, he's definitely a Beatle nerd, too. I, I love this guy. I know he made the Polar Express and yeah. some other stuff, but <laughs> but but let's let's forget about yeah. that for a while. It's like um, me and John Carpenter. You kind of have to pretend that a whole latter phase of their career doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah, I mean, most, most great artists, yeah, probably. But, that's uh, true. Yeah. But yeah, Robert Zemeckis said that at least at the time, Contact was his most challenging movie ever because the book spans years and countries and planets and parts of the universe. It was just the biggest span across the board that he'd ever had to tackle before. So this was a, this was a tough one for him. Yeah. So uh, Linda said that Julia Roberts and Uma Thurman were both floated for the role of Ellie Arroway. Uh, Goldenberg said that every actress in Hollywood wanted the part. Foster has a one of the better mic drop moments in that Vulture history. She says, quote, I didn't have to audition. Pretty sure I had already won two Oscars by then. <laughs> she had. <laughs> oh, my God. This reminds me of that incredible story. I'm pretty sure I've told it on yeah. here before about Shelley Winters. Dropping I, the know. Oscars on the table. 
Yeah, she like you don't ask people of that caliber to audition, but I guess they whoever was making this movie, I don't even know what movie it was, insisted she come in, and uh, she comes in with a big bag and reaches in, slams one Oscar on the table and says, "Here's my headshot." <laughs> reaches in, slams the other Oscar on the table. And here's my resume. Any questions? She doesn't talk like that. I don't know why I made her sound like that. I'm sorry, Shelly, wherever you are. Oh, I just Googled it. I don't know if that's true. What? No! Oh, what? (laughs) Tony Curtis, of all people, in the introductory to his autobiography said, I'm not interested in the Shelly Winters approach. There's already enough bullshit around. maybe, Maybe she made it up. Do you know that she donated her first Oscar to the Anne Frank house? Oh, yeah, because she won it for playing um, the van. Anyway, possible, uh, possible, possibly an apocryphal story from... Uh, she flew to the Anne Frank house, retrieved her <laughs> Oscar for this audition, just to make a point. <laughs> um, so the character of Ellie is named after Eleanor Roosevelt and Voltaire. Um, Arroway is an Americanized phonetic transliteration of Voltaire's actual last name, which is Arroway. And also she was going to fly through the cosmos like an arrow. Uh, according to Julia. Uh, it has been frequently reported, including by the New York Times, that the character is based on Jill Tarter, uh, who's an astronomer who worked on the real-life SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. She met with Foster while uh, Foster was researching the role, but Drian told Vulture that is not explicitly the case, and that she had not herself met Tarter until after she finished writing the character. And uh, Foster met with a few different women scientists to get a handle on how tough it was for them in the field, including a woman named Carolyn Porco. I guess to get all the technical jargon right, Jodie Foster asked for cue cards for the first time in her career, which is understandable. Uh, But these real-life scientists, yeah, like you said, shared their experiences as women in this industry, which was and probably still is predominantly a boys' club. And they were really just undermined and questioned and not taken seriously. And Ellie Arroway has been cited as a landmark character for portraying a strong female scientist. I mean, you had your Sigourney Weaver in the the Alien movies and Linda Hamilton in the the Terminator movies and Karen Allen in Indiana Jones. I guess she's not really a scientist, but but, but go with Mm -hmm, me here. mm -hmm. But Jodie Foster's character had so much more depth. She's lonely and isolated. We talked about this earlier. Everyone in her professional life has given up on her. She's going off chasing little green men and uh, they are so incredibly condescending to her, especially Tom Skerritt's character. Skerritt's also a dick to Sigourney Weaver and Aliens. Oh my god, you're right! <laughs> Everything bad that happens yeah. in the Alien movies is Gurney Weaver telling men not to do things and then they're like, ah, quiet lady, and then terrible things happen to them. Um, yeah, it's also Silence of the Lambs. It's like the exact thing that uh, Clarice has in mm. Silence of the Lambs. Every man around her is a shithead. Um, no segue for this next one. The character that William Fickner plays, Kent Clark, is based on a real-life SETI scientist, Kent Cullors, who is blind, actually. And uh, he said that he originally was supposed to play himself in the film, but that as the part grew bigger and expanded drafts, it required the skills of a real actor. But he's kind of like the secret MVP in the movie because it's his hearing that's able to hear that there's another tone because the aliens communicate through these tone frequencies that are sent over the radio mm-hmm. and he's able to hear things that people with you know average hearing are unable to hear and i guess the implication being is that because he's blind and you have all these stories about people who 
I think I heard a story about Stevie Wonder being able to tell the denomination of a coin by the sound that it made Damn. when it clinked on the floor or something. Yeah, I mean, your brain has the different areas of it that are marked for, I'm sure I'm getting all the, the science of this all wrong, but if you're unable to see, then the auditory area starts to take over that section of the brain as well, and you develop a really, really acute sense of hearing. It's just like some kind of evolutionary tactic, for lack of a better term. Well, I don't know how blind you'd have to be to actually pull out the tones from the SETI thing. On their website, they had a thing that came out uh, after this movie, and um, they said, uh, Project Phoenix examines 28 million channels of audio simultaneously. So uh, they say, we can't afford that many earphones, let alone the graduate (laughs) students required to listen. So computers scan for the signals, and then they, um, I guess they're automated to ping researchers when uh, interesting deviations occur. So the whole notion of you being able to hear anything on headphones to begin with is kind of a cinematic construction, but a necessary evil. Speaking of... Speaking (laughs) of cinematic constructions. (laughs) The romance between Ellie and Matthew McConaughey's character of Palmer Joss. Not in the... Yeah, what a stupid... name not in the book i have two qualms with this movie mcconaughey's character's name is one of them uh you know not in the book but it's tinseltown baby and mcconaughey was hot still is hot but it is hot hotter than i don't know what am i saying uh time to kill was a big hit and so he was uh, hotter than july stevie wonder callback comedy works in threes um, Sasha Sagan, who's Carl and Annie's daughter, have this to say about being next to 90s McConaughey on that film. Proxy to him, I think, expedited my puberty. <laughs> <laughs> um, George Miller had apparently approached Ray Fiennes for the part. Mm, no. Yeah, too, too no. sinister, too quietly sinister. Yeah. No. McConaughey said that it took him a really long time to read the script for Contact because he, quote, kept running upstairs to my attic to get my old college papers on technology and society. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Robert Zemeckis, I guess, always thought of uh, Ellie Arroway and Palmer Joss (laughs) as the classic movie romance. Two people who were physically attracted to one another, but separated by their ideologies. Like you and me. Aw. McConaughey (laughs) has some also great quotes in that oral history. Uh, He told Vulture... I had spent time in my life considering becoming a monk. I believe that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then he said, I went on a little spiritual walkabout for 22 days with myself in Peru to, I guess, deal with the um, aftermath of A Time to Kill being hit. Uh, And he came back and he accepted the role. Uh, He also did not audition, but uh, met with Zemeckis and Jodie Foster, who had approval over who was going to play the character. My favorite part is uh, he wanted to play the role with a giant lumberjack beard. (laughs) And Zemeckis was like, no, you're like a media expert. You don't look like a Unabomber on TV. And Matthew Connor was like, wow, damn it. Here's a, a goofy little casting aside. The brief role of Major John Russell, who was the guy who was going to get the gig to go on the spacecraft until he dropped out. It was that like really heartbreaking news conference when he's standing there with his kids and they're like, don't go, daddy, don't go. That guy. Mm. Uh, he's played by Stephen Ford, who's the son of former president Gerald Ford. And this is some inspired casting because Gerald Ford was a member of the House Select Committee on Astronautics and Space Exploration, and he helped draft the original Space Act that gave NASA its charter in 1958. So kind of full circle there. Hmm. Um, Yeah, this guy 
was an actor. He was initially cast to be the dopey jock that Olivia Newton-John hangs out with in Greece to make Danny Zuko jealous. But he dropped out at the last minute due to stage fright, apparently. And Fernando Lamas' son, Lorenzo Lamas, got the gig instead. This has been your Stephen Ford update of the episode. <laughs> uh, speaking of presidents, they initially wanted to cast Sidney Poitier as the president in the film, but he dropped out in favor of the Jackal. He chose uh, poorly. <laughs> which supposedly McConaughey turned down in favor of contact. So, you know, the, the real takeaway from all of these is that there's only like six things happening in Hollywood and like two dozen people making them at any given time. <laughs> Uh, well, before streamers, anyway. Uh, but fortunately, they lucked out because in August of 1996, NASA announced that it had maybe found signs of life in a Martian meteorite. And so President Bill Clinton gave a speech on it. And uh, Zemeckis said Clinton gave his Mars Rock speech, which a little dismissive, but sure. Uh, he says, and I swear to God, it was like it was scripted for this movie. When he said the line, we will continue to listen closely to what it has to say, I almost died. I stood there with my mouth hanging open. So they basically just use that speech in the film with some, uh, you know, movie magic to make it look like he's uh, saying the contact relevant stuff, right? Kind of ran out of Cigar chomping executive. Poitier dropped out. Get me Clinton. <laughs> Actually, you, you got to do the cigar shopping. You say you're way better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Zemeckis has a history of manipulating footage. I mean, in addition to doing all of the stuff that he did for Roger Rabbit, that was crazy and right. extreme. He also made Forrest Gump, where he has Tom Hanks hanging out with JFK and mm-hmm. Dick Cavett and John Lennon and all those people. But this Clinton thing was different because there were no actors dubbing voices or special effects at play, really. So his own words were what were being manipulated. And this caused a bit of a firestorm. I guess three days before Contact's premiere, the White House issued a letter on formal White House stationery and everything, the whole Ooh. bit, addressed to Robert Zemeckis condemning the use of the footage, calling it, quote, inappropriate. Because parody and satire are protected under the First Amendment, but you can't make someone appear to say something they didn't actually say. No legal action was threatened, but it was basically seen as a shot across the bow of the war in Hollywood against taking other liberties with the president's image. The whole thing blew over, but it started this whole debate by copyright and fair use lawyers about digitally recreating people's images on screen. And the technology for this wasn't really advanced back in 1997, but now you get things like there was going to be a a case of James Dean starring in a Vietnam drama called Finding Jack, something like 65 years after he died, something like that. (laughs) It's Uh, bad. I I think that was canceled, but yeah, it was pretty bad. And then the, the actor Peter Cushing returned to life 22 years after he died for a cameo in 2016's Rogue One, the Star Wars movie. Yep. And they and did think, uh they did Carrie in that one too. They, oh, like that's young right. young Carrie. It's yeah. gotten so bad that um when she died, Disney put out a statement that was like, Don't worry, we're not gonna digitally recreate her for a next, you know, piece of Star Wars branded excrement they shoved down our throats. <laughs> but we'll see how long that holds. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was like that commercial where Audrey Hepburn was selling like Dove chocolates. It's bad. I mean, it comes down to the estate, which is the dumb thing about it. Like, if your kids are greedy heads and they want to, you know, resurrect your corpse, they're going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to even get started on the hologram stuff, but... Oh, yeah, Tupac. Forgot about Tupac. We forgot about Tupac. (laughs) And Roy Orbison, I think. Oh, there's a Roy Orbison one recently? Yeah. Oh, boy. Look it up if you want to get really bummed out. Yeah. 
But speaking of people who were sort of pissed at the makers of Contact, let's talk about NASA. <laughs> According to the DVD commentary track, the scene where Jodie Foster is about to get into the spacecraft and she's given a cyanide pill in case of emergencies caused a rift between Carl Sagan and NASA's advisor on the film, a guy by the name of Gerald D. Griffin. And this guy, as they say, was a serious ham sandwich. He was working for NASA during the Apollo program, where he was a flight director for Apollo 13. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Uh, among others, among others. Um, and in the 80s, he was the director of the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And he insisted that NASA has never given any astronaut a cyanide pill, you know, just in case. Uh, and that, <laughs> I don't know if this makes it better or worse, if an astronaut truly wished to commit suicide in space, all they would have to do is cut off their oxygen supply. Um, however, Carl Sagan, who I think was a consultant on these same space programs in the sixties and seventies, uh, insisted that NASA did indeed give out cyanide pills and they did it for every mission that an astronaut has flown. So I don't know, maybe they didn't want that secret out or what? Yeah. I don't know. I did some Googling about it and it seems like Carl Sagan was like the only person who like (laughs) is advocating for that. It seemed like one of those things that's kind of appeared on like the IMDB trivia page and people are like, Carl Sagan said this, and Carl Sagan, I don't know, maybe pitched for it once, but yeah, I would cut off my oxygen before I took a cyanide pill. Cyanide seems painful. Oxygen is kind of like black out, right? How would you um, kill yourself in deep space, Jordan? <laughs> well, let me ask um, David Carradine. Um, <laughs> commercial break. <laughs> Not sure if I'm keeping that. Oh. <laughs> Oh, man. I was unable to verify this, but purportedly the sound the alien transmission makes that Ellie hears is a variation of the sound made in Doctor Who that the the Doctor's ship uh, TARDIS powers up in the original 1963 series. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. I saw a really great or really dumb or both video on YouTube where they have the whole scene of Jodie Foster hearing something in her headphones and running back to the headquarters and getting all the equipment set up so she could play whatever it is that's coming through the frequencies to all the gathered dignitaries and all the people that are there. And then they're trying to, you know, get all the monitors hooked up because they're trying to figure out what frequency it's on, doing all this stuff. It's just dragged on and on and on. And then they finally get it to play and it's uh, Rick Astley, uh, never going to give you up. You love the Rick Rick rolling. You love a Rick roll. I love. You're trying to Rick roll me on this. I've never tried that. No, but you're trying. You pitch that for us. You son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should do for April Fools. We should like claim that it's going to be about some other topic, and then Uh, they start listening, and it's just us talking about the history of Rick rolling. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly there were a number of experts brought on to the set to help the cast get to grips with this. You know world that they were inhabiting above the average actor's intellectual rigor um ha. sagan was increasingly ill at the time of the disease that would eventually kill him myelodysplasia uh delivered a slideshow lecture about space to the cast while they were in dc uh which mcconaughey remembers uh as follows let me see if i can do the mcconaughey voice um so uh it's a hard uh, quote to say in his voice <laughs> I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. Everything he'd said was filling me up and making me more of a believer than I already was. He got to the very end and goes, and therefore God doesn't exist. And I went, wait a minute. You have me believing God existed more than ever? And that's your punchline? He he lives more on God. God God exists. 
Because now we're getting to like true detective, like crazy, yeah. <laughs> crazy McConaughey. He was like, yep, I'd love to discuss it. <laughs> it just kills me. Sagan tells you God doesn't exist. And you're like, you just blew my whole world. And Sagan goes, yep, debate me, <laughs> coward. <laughs> Jodie Foster has this great memory from this Q&A that she said went on for hours and hours and I guess Carl was eating at one point probably because it's been going on for six hours and he was starving but he was so engrossed in the discussion that he held a fork full of food in his hands for 20 minutes as he spoke and he was just so caught up in the conversation that he didn't either didn't think to or didn't have a moment to just stick the fork in his mouth I love that God bless Carl Sagan. Perhaps, obviously, they watched 2001 and A Space Odyssey on the set to help get them in the mood, I want to say. I'm just imagining McConaughey just, like, baked his f*** in his trailer watching uh, watching 2001 and being like, wow. <laughs> Carl, is that what it's really like? <laughs> Carl Sagan's over there like, hmm. <laughs> Feeling his turtleneck. Uh, <laughs> this is excellent weed, Matthew. <laughs> Much better than what Anne and I had in the 70s. Uh, Speaking of research, Zemeckis and the team made several visits to the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida, where they were brought onto Launch Pad 5 prior to the launch of the space shuttle to get a handle on the mechanics of the elevator and the gantry area, the loading arm of the craft. Um, Among the many locations that they shot at was the, what we mentioned earlier, the Very Large Array, or VLA, which is the field of 27 linked dish radio telescopes located in the desert of Socorro, New Mexico. Um, And they actually had to uh, coordinate with the facility because they wanted to, uh, you know, the dishes all move and they wanted to shoot them when they were closest to one another because it would um, provide a better visual. And the producer named Steve Starkey, uh, in a very early online promotional site for movie i think it's called contactthemovie.com but you have to get it on the wayback machine he says shooting at the vla was of course spectacular but also one of the most difficult aspects of our filming it is a working facility so in order for us to accomplish shots for the movie we had to negotiate with the national science foundation for dish control in order to move the dishes in the direction we needed for the most dramatic shot for the story they did scenes for the vla control center on a soundstage, I guess they built not one, but two replicas that were so exact that they had the same wall posters and carpet color, and they even borrowed photos of researchers' families to have on text. That's weird. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jody said, uh, we were able to jump the line and do this shot in eight months ahead of schedule, uh, but then the weather f***ed us, and we were behind. Um <laughs> She's referred to this production as weather cursed and for good reason. Yeah. They spent a week in uh, Arecibo, Puerto Rico, shooting the largest radio telescope in the world. Uh, and terrible storms happen, mudslides. Um, you have much to say about the radio telescope in Arecibo, Puerto Rico. It's so cool. It's built into the side of this mountain crater. It's like supposed to be, it's it's where it is because it's far away from radio interference. It's basically like the audio equivalent of light pollutions. It's easier to hear things that are coming in from outer space. But apparently I was devastated to learn that this dish is in the process of being dismantled after it started to fall apart. Hmm. In December of 2020, the main structure of the antenna collapsed due to poor maintenance in recent years, especially after Hurricane Maria in 2017. And the steel cables that kept the platform in the air dropped and it crashed against the dish and it just 
destroyed it in the fall. And um, yeah, the National Science Foundation, who owned the uh, radio telescope since the 60s, I think, um, just decided that it was going to be closed and dismantled after 57 years of active service. So that's a real bummer. You look at pictures Ugh. of it now and it's all being ripped out. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, it is. Um, not the only weather issue, though. Second unit photography in Newfoundland at Grossmore National Park. Ken Ralston, who's a VFX supervisor, explained, we were shooting in helicopters and the weather turned really ugly. It started snowing like crazy. You could barely see what was happening. Imagine being up in a helicopter shooting second unit photography Ooh. and it starts snowing. Good Lord, you're not even doing, you're not even with Jodie Foster. You're just shooting <laughs> landscapes. Oh, I'm going to die photographing for second unit. Um, the extras, the scene in the extras in the desert, uh, this is, my God, this is more, I got secondhand embarrassment yeah. for this guy. They went to change a film cartridge and exposed it, losing an entire days of work with the, what did you say, 3,500? 3,000 extras. Ruining the entire day's work, had to be redone, uh, and he was fired. Oh. Oh, I'm just imagining it like cartoonishly like dropping out and rolling yeah. down yeah. like a whole rock <laughs> formation. And just everyone turns en masse and looks at this guy. And he's like, I'm fired, aren't I? And they're like, yeah, buddy. Um, Jodie Foster remembers continually hitting her head take after take for a shot in which she has to duck into a plane. She also says she got stung by a bee during a scene, and she claims in the final film she can see both what she calls the goose egg on her head <laughs> from bumping her head and a red splotch in her neck from being stung by a bee. Just think that's hilarious. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, 
personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. In the book, the message is received over a long amount of time, but in the movie, it's crunched. So production contacted advisors from SETI, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, and Caltech to ask them how this time frame could be adjusted for the big screen, who sent them seven pages of calculations about how that would work. And they duly forwarded that to Carl Sagan, who approved it. <laughs> sure, whatever. Do we have any pot left? <laughs> You remember in the movie, the aliens send back a transmission of Hitler opening the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin, which obviously left scientists and politicians horrified. <laughs> you know, why are these people, why are alien life forms sending us back a picture of the greatest mass murderer of the 20th century? Uh, and then they realized that this was the first television transmission that had enough strength to beam out into the cosmos. So the aliens sent back as a way of saying, message received, we hear you. However, in real life, there is some debate about this and some of the research that got really granular about like radio waves and stuff mm. that I won't bore you with. Uh, they say that the transmission of this broadcast was only strong enough to be received no further than the suburbs of Berlin, but still made a very impactful moment in the movie. They should have sent uh, Nixon saying sock it to me on laughing. <laughs> 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 Now we must talk, as we inevitably do in times like this. A man's thoughts turn toward the pod. <laughs> Not the podcast. Friend of the pod, the pod! <laughs> uh, early conceptual designs of the pod were based, as in the novel, on one of the primary shapes in geometry, a dodecahedron, or 12-sided figure. Um, eventually, that was modified into a spherical capsule, in cases uh, the traveler. Uh, designer Steve <laughs> to miss this guy's last name somehow. <laughs> it's okay. uh, no, it's not. I gotta find that His guy. mom's it... out there listening. <laughs> designer Steve Pod contact Terminator Two. Just Google this. Fuck is this guy's name? Could you say the set designer? <laughs> I know, but okay, whatever. I'm not gonna find that right now. Um, the guy who designed it uh, was also working on. He had been working on Terminator Two, and he based his design for contact on one that he had already done for Terminator 2 that didn't get used in the film, the concentric ring design for it. And Sony Imageworks designers working there lifted visual references from physics, like the nucleus, it's supposed to look like the nucleus at the center of an atom, and nature, like the pollination that occurs at the center of a flower for the design of the machine. The actual physical construction of the pod, the interior of the elevator, the gantry, took almost four months to build, and then they uh, digitally composited the rest of it in. 
This movie was Jody's first time filming in a blue screen situation. It took two to three weeks of just her in uh, that Joan of Arc inspired space suit. That's not me editorializing. They said they based it on actual armor. Uh, and that thing, by the way, was bolted into the chair. And they trained her for this experience by sending her to Magic Mountain for what she calls like 10 rides back to back with no time in between. Talk about running. They couldn't send her to NASA to train. So they're like, just go to Disney. Oh, Magic Mountain was the Six Flags, which is owned by Warner Brothers, oh, who are making this movie. So they, hopefully they, they, got her, clear. they got her comped. Also, very early in the production of this, they were considering making a contact ride. Oh. Which kind of would have been... I can kind of see that. Like, you know, they have the like the little pod on like a slingshot type yeah. of thing. They fire yeah. up. I can almost see them doing the opposite of that for this, yeah. like the like the big machine. But yeah, they apparently had Jodie Foster film the scene in the pod six different times with a different expression each time. One of joy, one of fear, one of sadness, etc. And then the visual effects crew morphed her face from one take to the next. Uh, you'll notice, I mean, some of them, when she's like, I don't know what she's doing. Astral projected through space. Yeah. Her face just kind of, something weird happens to it. I guess that's how they did it. They just superimposed all these faces of her again and again. Someone on the internet, I don't really have any any more information on them <laughs> Citation than this. needed. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, has noted that she screams, oh God, over and over and over again while in the pod, which some have theorized is kind of an Easter egg, considering this was the moment when she had a breakthrough in her regard to faith. She's kind of rejecting all of Matthew McConaughey's character's talks of God throughout the movie, but this is the moment that really changes her. So I just thought that was an interesting observation. Well, I like how she keeps the, the mantra, I'm good to go, becomes like, yeah. it's like the actual NASA call sign, but it becomes her like accepting her situation and coming to terms with the fact that she might die horrifically yeah. so i always like that part um more prosaically there was an electrical fire that burned Jesus. down one of the film's sets jodie foster's stunt double was bolted into this thing oh my god oh wow. i mean that sounds like the apollo one fire when mm. the for the first apollo mission in 1967 the astronauts were doing a run through just on the launch pad and it was very oxygen-rich environment, and I think just like a, there was some electrical problem, and a fire broke out, and and yeah, and they all died. Good lord! So I mean, that's terrifyingly close to that. I'm sure a lot of the people involved with the production would have been very aware of the Apollo One fire. Wow, that's horrifying. Uh, the whole beach scene with uh, Jody and David Morse—that was a day shoot at uh, Leo Carrillo. I don't know Carrillo Beach in Malibu. Rest of it is VFX. The interesting thing about that is they elevate, the, the waves are rolling in the wrong direction and the trees hmm. leaves are swaying too fast, kind of out of sync with that. Um, Zemeckis said he wanted to make it sort of, uh, we'll get to the bit in the end about this, about how they made the ending ambiguous. He said he did that because he wanted to plant the idea that maybe Elliot had a mini stroke or something and was hallucinating the whole thing. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> the art on that is so cool. I mean, it reminds me when we're talking about the Truman Show. It, there's just this like hyper-reality to the point where it looks unreal. Like, the beach is glowing white, but there's no visible light source. Yes, and yes, yes. It's yes. all slightly off. It's so cool. I'd read that they did most of that scene in 360 green screen, which is one of the first times that they'd ever done anything like that. But they also filmed the backgrounds on a beach in Fiji. Mm. So maybe they did some in-person pickups at this Leo Carrillo 
speech in Malibu. In fact, I'm going to hope that they did because I have a lot to say about this. Go on. I was looking up stuff for Greece just for my own amusement the other night, the Greece, the movie and the beach where they apparently filmed this father daughter scene in contact was the same beach where Danny met Sandy, the beginning of Greece, the scene that opens the movie. And the producers of Greece chose that beach because that's the scene of the famous beach kiss from here to eternity with Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr. You know, the, the, the water's coming up on the shore and they're in the sand. Very famous classic movie kiss. So that is our second Greece connection of this episode. Damn it. And Stephen Ford being Sandy's uh, we should do Greece. We should do Greece. Um, no. Also, it's the same beach where the dude and Walter Sobchak spread Donnie's ashes at the end of the Big Lebowski. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's great John, John Goodman doing his <laughs> shitty. Uh, he loved to surf from the beaches to La Jolla. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, uh, Very historic beach. Yeah. Moore said instead of being in Fiji, Jody and I spent three days downstage in front of a green screen. Oh, that's so funny. Anyway, so the film's opening scene, that three-minute computer-generated sequence that begins with the view of the Earth from the exosphere and then careens out through the solar system, out to the Milky Way. Eventually, the whole thing terminates in uh, the iris of baby Ellie. Is that Jenna Malone at that point? Or she just comes out in her eye. At that time, that was the longest continuous computer-generated sequence in a live-action film, eventually surpassed by the opening of The Day After Tomorrow in 2004. Anybody remember Day After Tomorrow? (laughs) That opening is so mind-blowing. To me, much more so than the psychedelic freakout part of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm. This scene was inspired by the short documentary by Charles and Ray Imms called The Powers of Ten. Have you ever seen Mm -hmm. this? It's like a famous little kids documentary. It's like nine minutes long. I say little kids. I mean, like an elementary school documentary. The subtitle kind of gives it away. It's a film dealing with the relative size of things in the universe and the effect of adding another zero, which is a bit on the nose. But it starts with this view of a couple having a picnic and it zooms out at a rate of one power of 10 every 10 seconds Mm. until the field of view is 100 million light years. And it just gives you this incredible perspective of, you know, both mathematically and also just for the cosmos. And then it zooms back in and then it zooms in and in and in and in and in at a rate of, you know, negative 10 per 10 seconds until you're looking at quarks and a carbon atom in this man's hand. It's really cool. And so the whole zooming out, zooming in thing was, I think, what was what inspired this opening scene for Contact. Um, And the ending credit scene of Men in Black. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. so much. Yeah. Speaking of extremely difficult shots, there's this one that's baffled cinephiles for years. I have to admit, I had never really noticed it because I just take things at face value in movie magic and don't really think about how they do things. I'm the worst film student. It's the famous medicine chest mirror shot. It's a scene when Ellie's father, David Morse's character, dies. Young Ellie runs upstairs to try to retrieve her father's medicine, and it looks like she's running straight towards the camera. But then the shot resolves to show that this was a reflection in the cabinet's mirror. And so then they pull back and have Ellie open the cabinet and get her father's medication. And when the mirror door swings shut, you see a reflection of a photo of her and her dad in the background. It's a brilliant bit of filmmaking, both technologically speaking and just economically. It says so much. And also just the absence of her father in that scene is so much cooler, too, because they were originally going to do a bit where... 
they were going to have almost like bullet time in the Matrix when uh, Ellie's dad starts to have a heart attack. He was, he was just going to kind of freeze as he dies, which is horrifying. I, I don't really understand. How, <laughs> yeah, which is both horrifying and I don't really understand how that was supposed to look. And apparently neither did Robert Zemeckis because as they started the production, they just weren't happy with the results. So, yeah, the scene where you only really see the look of this frightened child it's so much more arresting emotional like really really gripping scene but in a sunnier anecdote (laughs) in the movie young ellie's father affectionately calls her sparks you know a name for a radio operator uh coincidentally jenna malone the actress who plays young ellie is from sparks nevada i did not know that yeah and yet another uh Large plane Air Force One connection. She was the one who was supposed to play Harrison Ford's daughter in Air Force One, but she turned it down because she thought the role was boring. It basically consisted of crying the whole movie. So she wanted to do something else, which I think is cool. (laughs) But before we move on, we have to talk about by far and away my favorite character in this movie. S.R. Haddon. (laughs) Yes, John Hurt had no business going this hard in this movie, but hot damn. He is the slightly malevolent-seeming eccentric billionaire who's basically Ellie's guardian angel. Uh, He helps her solve some of the alien engineering problems and assists with helping her score funding. Uh, He's basically Howard Hughes with Keith Richards' voice. Um, (laughs) According to Robert Zemeckis, Haddon was based on what would happen if a Bill Gates type lost his mind. I think that was his almost direct (laughs) quote. But yeah, this Haddon character, he is endlessly quotable. You know, first rule in government spending. Why build one when you can have two for twice the price? What a great... (laughs) Wait, you said you were working on a John Hurt. I've had a long time to make enemies, Doctor. So many governments, business interests. Even religious leaders. You have to like put air in it. You gotta like, yeah. like to see me depart this earth. Uh, I'm just remembering. Uh, I'll grant them my wish soon enough. Uh, I am not an animal. <laughs> <laughs> I am a human being. Uh, yeah. What's the, there's, there's a line when he says something. He says something that I kept using from uh, In V for Vendetta, which was, uh, We are being buried beneath the avalanche of your inadequacies. <laughs> <laughs> and spare us your professional annotations, Mr. Sun. They are irrelevant. Oh, he's so really, good. To me, that it sounds like a slightly more sober Keith Richards. Like that's what that sounds like. To me. Uh, there's anyway. a, that's one of the ones that um, Steve Coogan does in one of the trips, right? Oh, you're right. Yes, yeah. yes. Jodie Foster first meets Haddon on his private jet parked on an airport tarmac. This is Van Nuys Airport in Burbank, which is where Casablanca was filmed. It's very famous for huh. film historians, yeah. Now, in the book, Haddon is in his 50s and in perfect health, and he decides to go into space orbit to extend his life. And at the end of the book, he fakes his death, is cryogenically frozen, and sent off into deep space in hopes of becoming immortal when an advanced civilization comes upon <laughs> his spaceship, which rules. But in the movie, He has cancer and goes to live aboard the space station Mir in order to prolong his life. Yes, Mir! (laughs) 90s Russian space station Mir making its first appearance (laughs) on the pod. (laughs) Who remembers Mir? Friend of the pod, Mir! Yeah, exactly. I mean, as I said, as an attendee of space camp, I was very fascinated by Mir, even though by many accounts, it was kind of a trash heap. 
it literally caught fire in orbit at one point. So yeah, my main memory of Mir is back in 2001 when it was deorbited, which is a fancy way of saying that they were done with it and just let it fall back to Earth and disintegrate upon reentry. Taco Bell put a giant floating 40 by 40 target in the South Pacific. And if any fragments from the space station hit it, they said they would give everyone in the U.S. a free taco. And this is per their VP of brand communications, quote, Taco Bell is capturing the imagination of millions of people as they eagerly await Mir's return to Earth. That's a very optimistic way of phrasing it. If Mir rings our bell, we will offer a free taco to everyone in America. Uh, sadly, it did not. That is incredible. Yeah. No, that's, that's an incredible bit of marketing, but. Anyway, back to contact. Mir <laughs> is where Haddon went to live uh, at the remainder of his days. And in the scene when they have like a video conference call, when, when Ellie comes home to her apartment and finds that somebody broke in and set up a satellite phone in her living room, which she's not as freaked out about as I would be. Sure. And they talk to Haddon and he's floating in his room up in Mir. It looks like really terrible CGI as he's floating around. But it's apparently real. They filmed this weightlessness by putting a camera on the floor, pointing it up, and they had John Hurt hanging down from like a bungee cord <laughs> cable. And they moved him around and had him float around. I don't know why it looks so bad. It's always bothered me. This and... Palmer Joss. Palmer Joss are the two parts <laughs> of this movie that I love so much that just really annoy me. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Anyway, so we talked earlier about how the film is changes the ending of the book. In the book, it ends with the capsule returns to Earth with a small amount of sand on the floor. So that That's is so good. Sagan and Anne's unambiguous pitch to make sure that people knew that this thing actually happened. Now, for the movie, the guy who wrote the first draft? I've, how many f***ing drafts were well, there? Yeah, I was going to say one, one of, of the many drafts. drafts. He said that Sagan told him, Carl was very specific to me when we were working that he absolutely wanted faith to be an issue, but ultimately what really happened to Ellie and the galaxy could be proven and it was real. Then, Goldenberg, who does yet another one of the drafts, said there were a number of versions of this ending. He says he met with Steven Spielberg about it, and at one point, Spielberg was considering doing the film because he wanted to make it, I guess, the third of his trilogy about aliens, Close Encounters, E.T., oh. and then Contact. And uh, yeah, Zemeckis ultimately got his way with making it an ambiguous ending. He said, I wouldn't dare to make it anything other than ambiguous because it would just be false. Mm. I never got the sense that it was an ambiguous ending, though. Everybody on Earth sees her fall her craft just fall into the water doesn't go anywhere yes. doesn't visibly leave the planet it all takes place in a matter of seconds but the footage from her body camera which is just static yes so it didn't actually capture anything had hours and hours and hours of it so i thought that was pretty unambiguous to me no um, because remember the congressional they formed the congressional committee is like oh they said it was a hoax designed by Haddon right so right but then at the very after the conference is over Angela Bass's character has the national security advisor into her office and was like yeah well we looked at the camera yeah. you're right it was static in it but 14 hours of it like yeah. how do you explain that and that to me i thought meant she went somewhere because the whole movie I don't know uh, I mean have you ever had like a mislabeled file on a camera that says it was recorded <laughs> in 1996 <laughs> oh, I mean I don't know I mean 
I would agree with you if it wasn't for the fact that Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey keep talking about Einstein's theory of relativity about how if Ellie traveled X number of light years, she would come back four years older, but everyone on Earth would be 50 years older. So there's a lot of discussion about travel and the nature of time and how it gets distorted when you're going long distances and stuff. So if, if that hadn't been such a major theme in the movie, I would agree with you, but I have to assume because they laid the groundwork for that in so many scenes in the movie that this whole nature of look like a blink of an eye for us, right? an eye <laughs> as in the image that opens the movie. Every act of this movie starts with a close up on, uh, Arroway's eye and then zooms out in the cosmos. So blink of an eye, mm, maybe mm-hmm. that was some kind of an analogy there, uh, was actually something that was a lot longer, a lot more profound for Ellie. I don't know. I'm just we're just spitballing here. No bad ideas and brainstorming. <laughs> First thought, best thought. <laughs> um yeah. So uh, you know, I don't know. You, know, you think it's ambiguous. I don't know. I don't really care. Uh <laughs> like, really? I, no, because I think uh-huh. it's I think it's it's supposed to be all things to all people, right? Right. I mean, I, I do think that this whole movie, and I know I touched on this at the start of the episode, is such a beautiful depiction of the nature of faith. And that's faith in whatever you want to call it. Right. Call it God, call it an experience, as Jodie Foster's character does when she testifies. She says, I don't I don't know, I can't explain it, but I had an experience. You know, there's that great bit of debate Socratic logic, I don't know what you want to call it, where uh, Matthew McConaughey and Jodie Foster are are arguing about the nature of faith at the beginning of the movie. And uh, and Jodie Foster's character says, you know, I only want to believe in things I can prove. Mm -hmm. And McConaughey's character says, did you love your father? And, you know, she's kind of taken aback. Well, yeah, yeah, I did. And he says, well, prove it. And what do you say to that? I just thought that was such a brilliant way of illuminating that which can't be proven or quantified. Um, and that's such a the part about this whole movie that I really like is somebody who, again, dedicated their life to science. And so many people think that science and faith, I won't call it religion. I'll say faith and science are diametrically opposed. And I think this movie argues against that. I think it gets back to what I said at the beginning of the episode. I think that you allow for things that, that you don't know and can't explain. Yeah, I don't know. I never thought it was ambiguous. I always thought it was very clear that it was unexplained how that occurred, how it looked like a blink of an eye on Earth, but to her it had however many hours of footage of static that she had with her. But I, I yeah, I don't know. I maybe Again, maybe it says more about me and my view of space and faith and aliens and all that stuff. But Well, I, I mean, regardless, in pure movie sense of the movie, uh, Anne didn't like it. <laughs> she said, I would have preferred uh, uh, the ending. Sagan's Widow? Yeah, Android. Oh, no. She said, I would have preferred the ending to be different. I think it's beautiful, but if Carl and I had been all powerful and Carl was healthy, <laughs> if Carl and I had been all powerful, <laughs> then I would have made it differently and he would have too. And that is sadly where we have to come to. Oh, um, oh man. You know, Carl went home. Um, oh. he, uh, on December 20th, 1996, he died at the age of 62, literally working and providing notes on this film until about two weeks from his death. Um, wow. and it was, um, as you said, it was a miracle that he hung on as long as he did. Yeah. He was given, I think something like six months to live when he was diagnosed in 1994 and he underwent bone marrow transplants, which are extremely painful, but they extended his life so that. 
even though we didn't get to see his passion project completed, he got to see it in the final stages of it coming together. And he knew it was going to happen, which is, you know, I think something that his loved ones took a lot of comfort from. Did, did they, I know they, sh- they blasted some of Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek's ashes into space. Did they do that for Carl Sagan? Oh, uh, that's a good question. No, cause I mean, they had a funeral for him. Um, yeah, but I think they only took a little bit of Roddenberry's up yeah. at a later date. I don't know. Oh, there's blue marbles on it because of the oh. the pale blue marble. Oh, oh on that's, the Zern? That's so sad. No, on his gravestone, people leave blue marbles oh. in there. Oh, if you go, my God. Go up to in, in Ithaca. Oh, man. <sighs> I guess he was supposed to have a cameo in the movie in contact as a member of the committee uh, selecting the occupant for the space machine, but he died before the scene was filmed. But there's a photo of Sagan in Ellie's apartment. As like a little, little tribute to him. And as you said earlier in the episode, the outfit that she wears while arguing for funds in the boardroom for for more money to, uh, you know, to continue her work at SETI is based on Carl's famous blazer and turtleneck. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, his widow, Andrean, had a cameo as one of the guests on the TV show Crossfire. <laughs> so that was funny. <laughs> An insult. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we mentioned earlier at the top of the episode, the real villain of contact, Francis Ford Coppola. (laughs) (laughs) Just days after Carl Sagan died, Dream was served court papers after getting back to their home in Ithaca after his funeral. Huh. God. Coppola was suing Sagan posthumously, along with Warner Brothers, who claims that he had the idea for Contact in 1975 and approached Sagan about collaborating on a TV program for the Children's Television Workshop. Justifiably so, and was pissed. Yes, she told EW, All I can say is, when a man writes a complaint with his lawyer while your husband is dying after a third bone marrow transplant, and then waits for him to die so he can file it, it's outrageous. Mm. Also, it was for $250,000, which seems like peanuts for Hollywood types. Like that's, I don't yeah. know, unless he was like still paying off Apocalypse Now or something. Yeah, well, like it's, like the, it's like the, the Dr. Evil thing. He's like, we're going to sue him for $250,000. And they're like, Francis, your, your shitty wine makes $250,000, like a quarter. Anyway, Anne would also later say, I couldn't believe anyone could be so heartless. She said, I was deposed many times by his lawyers, and I'd be sitting there in the months following Carl's death when I was just barely holding it together in such pain and despair. They would show me manuscripts of Carl's with his beautiful little Brooklyn public school handwriting in the corners, and I would just start weeping at the sight of it. Ugh! This really maybe makes we, me hate Coppola. It's just furious. Maybe we all have a love so pure that our loved ones weep at the sight of our handwriting. That hurts. Yeah. Obst said, Obst said nobody took it very seriously, but it was very vicious. Um, he sued and lost. Uh, it was dismissed in 1998. The judge, this is really weird. The judge actually agreed that Carl Sagan had violated some terms of the contract with Coppola, but he also said that Coppola had waited too long to file his suit. And it's believed that the root of all this involves Pinocchio, 
Coppola really wanted to make, I guess it was his childhood dream to do a live action film based on Pinocchio. Because this was the period when he was just going hard on literary classics. He'd done Bram Stoker's Dracula, Secret Garden, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. He'd either directed or produced these. And so a movie version of Pinocchio was the one that he really wanted to do. But Warner Brothers said they owned the rights and prevented him from making the film in another studio. That's a gross oversimplification of this not very interesting contractual wrangling, but that's the gist. Coppola wanted to make Pinocchio and sued Carl Sagan's widow when he couldn't. It's that's that's just grim, especially when you think of yeah. Coppola as someone who's like auteur, like art above all else. It's like you. Have you seen Godfather Three? Well, <laughs> uh, or Jack. Ooh. Actually, Jack bumped me out. Ooh. Uh. Anyway, we have to get out of this. Um, the cr- <laughs> Somehow. Uh, the crew literally raced to the last minute to finish this movie. Uh, the SFX uh, supervisor, Ralston, said that uh, when it premiered in August of 97, it had shots in it that weren't finished. But he said no one could tell. Uh, the movie nearly doubled its $90 million, uh budget at the box office, although it did come into second to Men in Black. And uh, Linda Obst, in particular, was upset that it was upstaged by Independence Day. She has a tremendous quote. We all talked about Contact wanting to beat the stupid version, Independence Day, which had come out a year earlier and been a big hit. It's a movie that I irrationally despised for this reason. I hated them disproving Carl. Carl believed that if you gave somebody entertainment that stimulated their cerebral cortex, made them have to think in a thrilling way, it would be more successful than appealing to their reptilian brain. I wanted Contact to be number one. Then it opened against Men in Black and came in second. It made me really angry for a long time that the stupid movies won, which I don't think is entirely fair. Independence Day is stupid. Men in Black is much less stupid. Yes, USA Today called Men in Black Independence Day for smart people, so I will stand by that. Yeah. While we're on the topic of snubs for this movie, Jodie Foster failed to receive a apparently much anticipated Oscar nomination for her performance as Ellie Arroway. Some have speculated that this is because she was pregnant at the time and refused to name the father, which was viewed by many as confirming that she was a lesbian, a fact which she had not corroborated at that time. So there's the possibility that this stigma was the reason why she was snubbed. I really hope that's not the case, but I wouldn't put it past anybody. Yeah, I I have no... I, I did some Googling around on that thing. I was not able to find anything about that but i'm sure somebody said it at some point in hollywood yeah but there is still a happy coda to the story of contact nearly 15 years later uh the search for extraterrestrial intelligence institute in california was hit with some budget cuts uh both federal and on the state level basically had to stop operating in april 2011 but they put out a public campaign for funds launched on their website, and with a goal of $200,000, and they received $223,000 in donations from just over 2,500 donors, one of whom was Jodie Foster. Oh. She really was good to go. Oh, <laughs> God. That, I mean, yeah, the good to go, that voice coming through the static and the noise just chant i'm good to go i'm good to go it just gets me i mean she should have got an oscar for that scene when she's finally out there and this look of 
I don't know how to describe it. It, 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 it transcends childlike wonder when she's just experiencing space and these other galaxies. It's beautiful. And she has that incredible choked line, you know, no words mm-hmm. should have sent a poet, which is one of our favorite lines from this movie, right? Yeah, I love that line. And and I was trying to find where it may have actually come. I don't think that it did. There's a big message board thread with a couple of different things. You know, Walter Cronkite uh, may have said it at one point, oh, wow. referring to the first manned space flights. He said, uh, those of us on Earth wondered how it looked to the poet's eye. Uh, there's a book by Nancy Friedman called Joshua, Son of None, which is a sci-fi novel from 1973. with It contains a line of dialogue, astronaut. That kind of job, astronaut, is for the technician type, without the imagination to be scared. And another character replies, you're wrong. What better place for a poet than space? Um, hmm. There's a short story called A Rose for Ecclesiastes from 1963 by uh, Roger Zelazny, where they send a poet to Mars. Oh, here's one. Here's an unattributed claim uh, for um, Sergei Korolev, who's the chief designer and scientist behind the Soviet space race once remarked they should have sent a poet and not a pilot hmm. so i don't know i could see carl sagan wanting to bridge the space race you know american russians with incorporating that quote yeah that's wow. interesting well folks if you can pin down the exact origin of that phrase we'll send you five bucks <laughs> <laughs> there's a I, I just want to end with um a line that Carl Sagan said at one point, mm-hmm. he said sometimes, to me, I feel like this sums up the generous, imaginative spirit of the right kind of scientist. He said, science is sometimes attacked for supposed arrogance, but I think it's the most humble occupation and discipline around. Because instead of trying to impose our preconceptions on the universe, we are open for the universe to see what the universe has to offer. <laughs> Go outside and look up at space tonight. Yeah, seriously. Everyone should just do that. And, uh, you know, use that to try and fight the uh, miserable pull towards Earth that the rest of your work, <laughs> the rest of your work week will in- impose upon you. Yeah, I don't know. This is an uncharacteristically uh, sincere episode from us. I have nothing snarky to offer. And when you do come back inside, watch this movie again. Yeah. It holds up, man. Yeah. Well, folks, thank you for listening. As always, this has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtalk. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtalk. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtalk and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.